It's Monday, December 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It truly has become the midterm elections that never end. The race for the 9th District in North Carolina has been called into doubt over claims of electoral fraud. The North Carolina Board of Elections has decided not to certify the results of the election, which has Republican Mark Harris in the lead with just over 900 votes. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to explain the controversy and if a new election might be needed. Next, the future of lie detection may be here, and it's focused on your eyes. A new technology is aiming to get rid of the standard polygraph test and positions itself as a more accurate, cheaper, and faster alternative. Mark Harris, journalist with Wired, joins us to talk about eye detect, how it works, and where it is already being used. Finally, get ready for one of the worst gifts of the season, divorce for the holidays. Starting on January 1st, new tax rules will go into place that will affect alimony payments and how they are taxed which is causing a rush on getting your divorce finalized before the new year. David McKay Wilson, reporter for Lohud.com, joins us for what to know about the new tax law and why you may want to address your divorce sooner rather than later. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There appears to be election tampering, election rigging, election stealing. And as to whether there's any voter fraud, I don't know. What I've seen is that uh, they scheme to victimize voters uh, and to impact this election. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. You know, it's funny, we were covering all the midterm election stuff and we kept saying it's the midterms that never end. <laughs> and we were saying it kind of tongue in cheek for a little bit, but it's actually holding true. These things just will not give up. And right now there's allegations of voter fraud in North Carolina's 9th district. They're saying that it's possible that they might have to do a whole other election there. What do we know about what's going on there? That's right. They could hold another election. I was speaking to a North Carolina Republican this week who said it appears not to be a question of if they will have another election, but if they will redo both the primary and the general. So Mark Harris, the Republican, won, appeared to have won the election by about 900 votes over McCready, a, a strong Democratic candidate to run in what is a fairly conservative district, a veteran who had a very compelling story. Now there are accusations that a support Porter, a staffer, someone aligned with Harris's campaign may have engaged in some voter fraud, particularly when it came to absentee ballots, and that it may have been enough voter fraud to constitute redoing the election. The person in question is Leslie McCray Dowless. And they say that he worked for the Harris campaign as a contractor. And there's all sorts of crazy stuff coming out of there. There are reports of them saying that he would receive a bunch of extra money if Harris won the election. They're saying that people that were working for Dallas were walking around and picking up absentee ballots from voters. A lot of times they might not have been sealed or finished. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll finish it for you kind of thing. So these are all of the weird allegations coming out of that. Yes. And that's illegal. You're not allowed to go collect people's unsealed absentee ballots. They're supposed to be delivered via the United States Postal Service. So there's a lot of questions there about what 
they were doing. And they've had three votes now by their board of elections to not certify this vote. Democrat Steny Hoyer, who will be the majority leader when the new Congress begins in January, said that Harris should not be sat. He should not be allowed to become a sworn member of Congress because of these inconsistencies. So it seems that they've got a month to maybe figure this out and decide what they're going to do before the new Congress begins in January. One of the other allegations was, or one of the other irregularities, let's say, was that there was a certain number of absentee ballots requested and then it didn't really match up with how many got turned back in. So it's all about these absentee ballots. And we were talking about if they call for a new election, there's like two scenarios. If the state calls for a new election, it would just be a redo. It'd be the same three candidates on the ballot. But if the House refuses to seat Harris and they call for a reelection, it starts from scratch, basically. There's a new primary. The old incumbent can even run if he wanted to again. And it's like a free-for-all, although it seems like it would cause a huge mess. It would be quite the mess. There is even a possibility that the state could determine that because of these irregularities, that it calls into question the outcome of the already certified primary and restart the primary. So this this is a whole bundle of a mess, and they're trying to sort it down in, in North Carolina. The Republican I talked to from the state said that he had received a call from someone from Florida who said, thank you for making us look better this year. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, we're on the outside looking in. We're not analyzing all the of the absentee ballots and everything, but that looks it's tainted the election enough. I know there's some question as to whether the number of absentee ballots is really enough to overcome the actual votes that Harris is ahead by, but still, it just seems like a complete mess. And and how can you uh, not try to fix it? And there was, I think, one precinct where the absentee ballots went overwhelmingly to Harris and there was only one to McCready. And that sort of raised a lot of eyebrows, too. So there seems to be some problems and we're going to have to see how North Carolina sorts those out. What's the next step on that? They could meet in the next week or two to decide whether or not they would request another election. They're holding an investigation. They're conducting interviews. I think they said that if they do call for another election, it possibly could couldn't happen till March. So it is the midterms that never ends. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Lie Detect truly is a revolutionary lie detection technology. It detects deception through a detailed analysis of the behavior of the individual's eyes. I detect correctly classified, deceptive, and truthful examinees with 85% accuracy. Joining us now is Mark Harris, freelance journalist writing for Wired. There's this new eye scanning lie detector. It's less expensive. They're saying it could be better than the polygraph test, which everybody knows is widely used, although not widely respected. People say they fool it all the time. That's the first thing everybody wants to do. Take a polygraph test to prove that you're not lying. And that's a $2 billion industry. So this new thing here, uh, it's called iDetect, and it's supposed to be the next best thing. What do we know about it? The underlying idea of it isn't, isn't crazy. The idea that when we're telling lies, when we're trying to deceive people, it takes a bit more work. It takes a bit more emotional effort to lie. And also we get kind of excited or nervous when we're lying. So that's kind of pretty well understood from the psychological side. Now, iDetect kind of takes a big leap from that. 
and says that, oh, if we take a video of your eyes, like looking at your eyes and the way that your pupils change, the way that you blink or you look in certain directions, then we can tell whether you're lying or not. So it kind of takes some understood psychological principles and then takes this big jump saying that by looking at your eyes, we can tell whether you're lying or not. Right. And and the normal polygraph test takes other measurements like your heartbeat and things like that, right? A polygraph takes a number of different ones. It kind of measures your heart rate. It measures your skin conductance, which is basically a scientific word for your sweat, your, how sweaty you are, and also things like your breathing rate, your blood pressure. And this just kind of focuses just on the eye, but lots of different things about the eye. So the amount you blink, how long you take to answer a question. And the big difference, though, is that it's completely automated, right? There's no operator sitting across the table asking you questions. You're sitting at a computer screen, you're looking at a webcam, and you're just clicking on answers as the questions come up on the screen. Just first, that contrast between this and a standard polygraph test, this thing takes like 30 minutes to go through where a polygraph test are much longer, two hours, up to four hours, depending on how many questions you're going to ask. It, it uses algorithms, right? The, the game is now, can you beat the algorithm versus can you beat the interpretation of the test administrator? So instead of going to an operator or administrator coming and scoring your test, the algorithm does that. So it's kind of an AI process where the system has supposedly been developed by checking people who they know are telling the truth or lying. That's problematic anyway. But then the actual evaluation process is very quick. All your motions and all the things about your eye get sent up into the cloud. The algorithms crunch through it and then out pops an answer about whether you're telling the truth or not. Actually, it kind of gives you a scale. It kind of scores you on 100. And if you get over 50, you've passed. And if you get under 50, then you've failed some part of that test. And how does it work? Are you putting on glasses? Glasses? Are you just staring at another computer screen? I noticed in your reporting, you're answering questions on, on a Microsoft tablet. How is it analyzing your eyes? Yeah. And then it's just like a little camera attached to it, just like a little camera attaches on your laptop, little external webcam. It's just like sitting at a computer, just like sitting at your desk, really. If, if you already have a screen and a camera pointing at you, which many of us do for you know video calls, then it just feels exactly like that. It just feels like you're clicking through. There's no lasers. There's no sense of it looking at you. You don't have to wear anything. It can kind of track your motions. I mean, you can't can't be wobbling your head all over the place. But if you're just sitting at the computer, it just seems like taking an online test of any sort. Let's talk about the accuracy of this, because I know there's some debate about how accurate it can be, how low it goes, and also who's using this so far. The thing about accuracy, right? I mean, the company says that it's 86% accurate, which is pretty accurate and probably more accurate than the polygraph, if that were true. The polygraph, people say anything between 50 and 80%. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem is that the only people who check the accuracy of the device are the company <laughs> itself and scientists who, you know, who, who are working on the, that's on the how technology. They get away with it. <laughs> yeah. So there's that question mark over it for a, for a start. I'm not saying they're doing anything improper, but, you know, their expectations come into the test, the way they do the test, who knows? We haven't had many, many really serious independent eyes looking at it. And then some of the tests even they've done themselves have proven problematic. There was one they did with the National Security Agency, the NSA, where they tested staff within the NSA itself about little minor security violations. And that might be something like taking your cell phone into an area, you're not allowed it, not actually doing anything wrong, but just like, you know, forgetfulness perhaps. And they found really only detected 50% of the people who admitted taking the test in, right? So they, oh. they, they questioned them and then they asked them afterwards, did you really take your phone in? And, and people would admit it because it wasn't a big deal. So that was like a 
like 50% in the real world. Now they've said they've had um, other examples where it's done better. And they've also said there are other examples where it did kind of worse, but they haven't published the results. So the question is, you know, no one really knows exactly how accurate it is on a scientific scale, but that hasn't stopped people wanting to use it. The polygraph has its own problems with accuracy and people still use those. There's a couple of US embassies have used it abroad for hiring decisions and some US companies as well, some or some international companies, they can still be used by law enforcement to hire their staff. And that's primarily where they're being used within the US. About 20 agencies, the company says, is already using the iDetect system to screen their potential employees. So this is gaining some traction and you could possibly see it in a lot more places. We talked about how cheap it was compared to a standard polygraph test. They're charging between 60 and 80 bucks per test on this. So that's a big difference there. Tell me about your experience because you went through this whole thing. Let me know if you beat the machine or not. Well, you know, I thought I couldn't write about it without having a go on it. And the company arranged for me to take a test at one of these stations where potential police officers would also take the test. So I had a pretty fair crack of the whip of the technology. And, you know, it was actually, it wasn't stressful. It wasn't, I didn't feel like I was in an interrogation room being grilled by somebody who was trying to find me out. Right. You know, we didn't do the full test that they would do, which asked you about drug use and other criminal behavior. We did one where it tries to guess a number you're thinking of. And they said, oh, you know, think of a number between one and 10 and we'll guess what it is just by asking you questions about what your number is. And so I think of a number and I take the test and really it, the time zips by, I'm clicking away and it doesn't feel strange at all. And at the end, it says, comes on the screen, you've chosen number three. And I hadn't, I've chosen number one. <laughs> so I beat the test and I felt so good about it. I felt great. No, that wasn't, this isn't, this isn't a real test. <laughs> <laughs> and then they explained to me, actually, we wanted you to think of a number between two and nine, uh, like like one to 10, but not one or 10. Yeah. And I was like, oh, what? So we, we complete <laughs> miscommunication between us. But the system didn't realize that I hadn't chosen one of the numbers it was asking about. Right. That in there, right there is some of the inherent problems. If you're not understanding right. the questions right, things can get right. uh, wonky from your reporting. Also, there's sensitivities that they can also alter in the algorithm. Right. So there does seem to be a few kinks to be worked out on. But it's still pretty fascinating because we've always been kind of trying to figure out this type of technology. I mean, the polygraph test is so old now and they're just trying to think of some more things. It's fascinating because it's, well, because it's kind of cheaper and easier. It doesn't need the examiner. It could actually scale much more. Right now you're limited to these long polygraph tests and they're quite intrusive, physically and emotionally draining to, to people. Whereas this is something you can administer this test in a matter of minutes to anyone who happens to be walking past. I think you're interesting that you picked up on the idea that they can adjust the test just because it's computerized doesn't mean it's impartial. And I've got through my records request as part of the story, I've I found several instances where they put their thumb on the scales, right? So when there was somebody that they thought had a better chance of passing the test, and that was like maybe somebody who had previously been employed as a police officer elsewhere, they gave them an easier test. Uh -huh. And conversely, when there was somebody who literally came from the wrong part of town, right? They were identified as coming from a, an urban center where they traditionally had some problems with you know, inner city violence, then they actually made gave them a harder test. And so somebody who should have, in the case of the police officer, somebody who should have failed for admitting drug use, actually passed the test. And from the case of the somebody who came from the inner city, someone who should have passed because they got a passing grade was failed because they adjusted this sensitivity. And so that kind of thing just means that, that just because it's computerized doesn't mean we get away from the same old problems we've got with a lot of election procedures in that they you know, have come some kind of institutional bias built in. Mark Harris, freelance journalist writing for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks a lot.
we're dealing with things like breaking up the Christmas holidays and how everybody is taking Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And we just finished Thanksgiving. And so all of those issues, which are custodial issues, are usually in the forefront. Now we are extremely busy because people would like to be able to sign a deal based upon the new maintenance um, issues that are coming up in January. Joining us now is David McKay Wilson, reporter for LOHA.com and the USA Today Network. So we're going to be talking about taxes and divorce. There's new rules that are being enacted on January 1st. Alimony deductions are going to be changing under the new Trump tax reform, and it could cause a rush on getting a bunch of divorce deals done before the new year. I can't imagine wanting to do anything more right in time for the holidays. But you spoke to a couple of uh, tax lawyers where they're saying a lot of times in the holidays, they're dealing with things about custody. You know, if kids are going to go here for Christmas and there for New Year's and things like that. But this year, since these new rules are going to be kicking in, everybody's trying to finalize all of the tax side of these things. What do we know about that? Under the tax reform passed in 2017 by Congress, the treatment of alimony will change. Under the current law, the moneyed spouse, typically the husband, that alimony payments were tax deductible on his federal income tax filings. It was also, and then for the person who received the alimony, they actually had to declare it as income and they paid taxes on it. Now, this is going to change in the new year where the person paying the alimony won't be able to deduct it and he'll pay taxes on his full income and the person receiving the alimony no longer has to pay taxes on it. It gets changed around. The object of this law change was to create more money for the federal government, which means that the income received by the moneyed spouse will be fully taxed, whereas in the past, the taxes were paid by the less moneyed spouse and paid at a lower rate. So this way it'll generate more money for the federal government and help fund the corporate tax breaks. With that, once this deduction is gone, people are saying that there's going to be less money for the family unit because of how it's being restructured. In your article that you wrote, you detailed with big broad numbers on how this could work. You use a spouse maybe earning $300,000 a year. They would be paying about $100,000 in alimony. Run that scenario through us just so people can understand how this would work. Let's say they're making $300,000 dollars a year and they're paying $100,000 in alimony, their tax rate is 35% on anything they earn over $200,000. So that $100,000, they weren't, didn't have the deduction, they'd be paying $35,000 in taxes. Under the current scenario, it's tax deductible for the moneyed person and then it would go to the wife and she would get $100,000 in income. She would be at a much lower tax bracket and her taxes would, say, come to $17,000 a year. So that would leave $18,000 in a sense, the subsidy that the government was providing in this divorce. That's going to vanish as of January 1st, and the husband is going to end up paying the entire $35,000 in taxes. Now, the wife won't pay taxes at all on what she receives. The pressure is really huge on this for people to get this done before the end of the year. If you finalize your agreements, you know, you get grandfathered into the existing rules and then you won't you even have the opportunity to make minor adjustments later, but you really want to get it done so you don't get affected by this new change. I 
noticed also in your article, you said advocates for women think that this will just be horrible for them, though, because since the other spouse is going to have to pay the taxes, then they might pay less or they're going to get bumped into a higher tax rate also, which would tax them even more. That's what the advocates for women say. How it actually turns out, we don't know yet, because you have to realize that the less money the spouse won't have to pay taxes on that. So you have to take that. The the husband will most likely have an argument to pay less. But how that all nets out, we don't know. The advocates for women think that the women are going to suffer from this. We don't know that yet, but that's that's what they're saying. Are there any other big tax stories we should be looking out for with the new changes coming in the new year? We do have this issue of the deduction of uh, state and local taxes. That's the big number. The federal government is expecting to save $700 billion over 10 years on this. In the past, that, that number was, you know, was basically not capped, but now it'll be capped, deduct state and local taxes. is going to be capped at $10,000 for a married couple and for a single person. And especially for people in high-tax states on the east and west coast, this is going to really end up with people paying more in taxes this year because they just won't be able to deduct as much. Right. It looks like it's a high time to talk to a tax lawyer and get all your stuff straight and know what you're getting into for the new year also so you're not blindsided later. David McKay-Wilson, reporter for LOHUD.com, part of the USA Today Network. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.